Our sermon text this morning, as we do continue through the Gospel of Matthew, is of course in Matthew 27, as we are looking at the crucifixion of Christ. And this morning we begin in verse 45. And uh, I know in your bulletin it's printed through 54. I'm actually going to read through 56. Hear the word of the Lord. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirits. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There are also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And so ends the reading of God's holy word. Father, we thank you again for your word and for its truth. We ask now that your spirit would move amongst us, that you would minister to your people, that you would speak the grace of the gospel once again into their hearts. And if there are any who know you not, who still walk in the darkness of sins, that you would open their eyes and give them understanding so that they might see the wonderful truth from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are certain events in the history of the world that have rippled through time in such a way so as to affect great change in the world. So we think of things like World War I or World War II, the Great Depression, the the fall of Rome, uh, the Reformation. These events and many others have affected the way people live, the way they worship, the shape of nations, and sometimes even the geography of the earth itself is altered by these kind of events. But if we are to take all of the great life-changing, earth-shattering, and universe-shaping events of history and put them in a scale next to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they wouldn't be able to move it in the smallest increments. Jesus' death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection changed everything Nothing can compare 
to the change that it brought. As Calvin said, in the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ changes the entire universe as we know it. It affects how we relate to God and to each other. It grounds our hope in the historical reality of God's power on display in the world. Power that changes everything. Jesus' death is the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end. And it all starts with the frown of heaven. The very first supernatural sign of this universe-shattering, history-changing event of the cross is the darkness we read of here that descended upon those who witnessed this event. As we read in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And we don't talk about days like that anymore. So what, what time of day is this? Well, the sixth hour is midday. It is, it is high noon. It is a time of day when the sun is at its fullest and its brightest. Unless you live in Michigan, then it's probably cloudy. But it is at that time when the sun is at its high, highest and its brightest that suddenly descends this absolute and utter darkness For three full hours. A thick darkness. Which is nothing less than a miraculous wonder of heaven. Which suspends the natural order of things. And that's what miracles are. That's what they do. It is is God working outside the natural order that He has created. In order to display His power. Usually His saving power in a special way. Miraculous signs accompany significant events in God's plan of salvation throughout history. I mean, the the Red Sea was divided. The walls of Jericho fell. Jesus was born of a virgin. The star of Bethlehem. All of these things, including this darkness, is God's power on display in a great and wonderful and saving way. This darkness is the frown of heaven looking down upon the death of Christ. Darkness in the Bible is many times a sign of God's judgment. For example, we read in the book of Amos, the Lord says, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun to go down at noon and darken the earth In broad daylight, I will turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. We see Jesus even speak of darkness as being a place of God's judgment in Matthew here, even in chapter 8, chapter 22 and 25, where he talks about God's final judgment being a place of outer darkness. Darkness, we know, is also associated with death, which we know is 
part of the curse of God's righteous judgment upon this world because of our sin. And darkness is also associated with chaos, the chaos of the uncreated world in Genesis 1. And so we can understand the symbolism that this darkness evokes and why it descended and how it relates to judgment. But the question we must ask then is why this darkness here now at this place as Jesus hangs in agony dying on the cross? Why did the world's outer darkness descend upon God the Son? If it is judgment, who is being judged? Well, the answer is Jesus. The righteous one, the one who did not deserve this judgment was being judged at that moment, at midday, in the place of sinners. He was suffering the full cup of God's wrath without dilution. And the weight of heaven's frown then, pictured in this darkness, bears down upon him. As Matthew Henry puts it, when earth denied him a drop of cold water, heaven denied him a beam of light. And that outer darkness was matched by the inner darkness Jesus was experiencing in the depths of his soul. We can't look in there and see it as we can see the picture of this outer darkness, but we certainly can hear it. As he cries out in his native language, Aramaic, Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is not a cry of mere physical pain. No doubt he was experiencing that. But this is a desperate appeal to God the Deliverer as the anguish of Jesus' heart closes in around him, darkening his very soul by what he was experiencing. And it was at that moment that Jesus was drinking fully of that cup of God's holy wrath. His back was being laden with sin upon sin and transgression upon transgression. Every last evil thought and deed, the shame and the guilt of everyone whom He would save. And so He cries out these words taken from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? I mean, just reading those words and hearing them, it cuts you to your heart and you say, what is happening here? Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, feels forsaken by God? In the Gospel of Matthew, we never find Jesus referring to God as my God, except here on the cross. He always refers to Him as my Father. That reflects the special relationship He enjoyed uh, that is enjoyed indeed by all the members of the Trinity, of the triune Godhead. But something was happening here that affected that. Jesus couldn't say my Father in this dark episode, something shifted in that relationship. And when it did, the entire universe felt that shift. He was overcome with a sense of absolute abandonment. Now, we need to be careful when we say that Jesus was forsaken by the Father. 
that we don't think that there was some sort of division in the Trinity itself, the breaking of the union of the Godhead. The Trinity did not suddenly become a duality. That would be heresy. The scriptures don't teach that. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is never changing, always was, is, and will be. And the Bible is very clear about that over and over again. God is one being, three persons, and he cannot change or he wouldn't be God. Nor was this a division of Jesus' two natures, his humanity somehow separating from his divinity. He cannot be separated. That is who he is. That too would be heresy. And the church throughout history has declared it as such. For redemption to happen, Jesus had to be both divine and human in perfect union. Only in in his divinity would he be the one with the power and the holiness to be that sacrifice to answer the infinite sin we have committed against God, but only in his humanity is able to stand in our place. So just as Jesus was present in heaven in his divinity, while at the same time being held as a little baby in his mother's arms in his humanity. So that same mystery that is hard to wrap our minds around is unfolding here on the cross. So what is this forsakenness then? How was Jesus forsaken if this is not a dissolution of the the Trinity? Well, to understand it, we need to remember that Jesus willfully agreed with the Father and the Spirit to suffer and die in the place of sinners. This is the triune Godhead actually working in harmony, not disunity, because Christ the Son agreed with God the Father and the Spirit that He would be the one to go to the cross. And that through that death, the Spirit would work In such a way as the Father judged Christ in the stead of sinners so that they might be redeemed. And Jesus, in this cry of forsakenness, expressing that He is now taking that judgment. He is taking up that role as the mediator for His people. We see that forsakenness in the fact that Jesus was delivered into the hands of his enemies. He was not spared. And not just the Jewish religious and civil leaders, not just the Romans and the crowd thirsty for blood, but he was handed over to sin and death itself. As we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God. God is of such purity that He cannot look upon sin. So when Christ took that sin upon Him, it was needful for that darkness to descend. Jesus was forsaken as the Father turns His face away when all our sin is laid upon Him. Secondly, this forsakenness means that the the Father withdrew the comforting aid of His mercy and His Spirit from the Son. In times of 
trouble during Jesus' earthly ministry in his humanity. He could pour out his heart in prayer. We see that on numerous occasions where he went apart to pray, to find comfort and relief for his weariness. But here, Jesus finds no comfort. There are no angels there to minister to him as they did after his temptation in the wilderness. There are no legions of heaven's hosts to pull him down from the cross and treat his wounds and chase away his enemies. He is forsaken. And finally, the forsakenness of Jesus that he experiences on the cross was the affliction of his very soul as he is crushed by the holy justice of God. I mean, think about that... This, as a Christian, when you sin, how do you feel? Well, it usually doesn't feel pretty good because God in His mercy and His grace through His Word, He will convict you. The Spirit of God will move upon you. You will feel the weight of your sin. And the purpose of that is so that you, you do come to Christ, so that you do confess it, so that you do know the joy of your salvation. But the law of God weighs upon you. It's a tremendous burden. It causes you to sorrow. Now imagine that multiplied a hundred times. It would kill you. Imagine it multiplied a million times. You can't. But that is the affliction that Jesus experienced upon the cross when He carried all the sin of every person whom He would save. That was the frown of heaven. And so heartrending was the cry of forsakenness that even someone in the crowd thought Jesus was calling out to Elijah for help. And that is because the word uh, Eli sounds very similar to the word Elijah in Aramaic. And there was also a Jewish tradition that Elijah was uh, sort of like a patron saint of deliverance and would come and save you in times of trouble. And a Roman soldier who was moved by so great a cry of suffering of which he had never heard before takes some cheap wine, sour wine that those soldiers would drink, puts it in a sponge to try to give to Jesus. And in the simple act of kindness though, we find it is stopped by the crowd. Jesus must suffer that forsakenness of God alone, but in full consciousness. He doesn't slip away in death, but He is fully aware of what is happening. And so with one final cry, He yields up, He gives up His Spirit. And the idea there is that He is willfully giving up His life. The job was done. The mission was complete. The final sacrifice for sinners was made. Matthew does not record for us those final words, but the other gospel writers do. Jesus said this great cry of victory, it is finished. And then, Father, into your hands I commend my spirits. The forsakenness was complete. Because redemption's price had been paid. And the frown of heaven, as he yields up that ghost, that spirit, that soul willfully turns to a smile. Salvation was done. And that changed everything forever. And God confirms that.
it confirms how changing, how incredibly powerful the change was that Jesus' death brought by these other miraculous signs that followed his death. As Jesus' flesh was torn by the nails and His Spirit was torn from His body, three other things were torn and opened as well. These three supernatural events were God's answer to Jesus' question, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Why did God forsake the Son on the cross? Because a new and a better way had been opened to enjoy God's presence. Matthew captures our attention here in verse 51. He says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this curtain, which hung in the temple, separated the holy place from the most holy place. In the most holy place, the high priest was to enter only once a year. And there he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice of atonement upon the mercy seat where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And if anyone but the high priest were to enter into that holy of holies, they would be struck dead in judgments for violating the holiness of God's presence. They were not permitted there. And even the high priest, if he did enter at any other time other than the time God had appointed, and if he tried to enter in any other way, other than the way God had prescribed in his word, he too would be struck down in judgment for violating God's holy law. That curtain then represented the divide that existed between holy God and sinful humanity. And it's a division that goes all the way back to the very beginning of time when the very first act of rebellion of, against God occurred. Where Adam and his wife Eve, representing all of us, we call that our federal head, were cast out of the garden of God's presence because they had disobeyed God. They had broken His law. They were no longer innocent. They are now stained with sin. They cannot abide in His holy presence. And to guard the entrance of the garden and prevent anyone from coming into God's presence, cherubim were placed with blazing swords. And you know what was embroidered on the curtain of that temple? We read in 2 Chronicles 3.14, it was made out of rich tapestry of blue, crimson, and purple fabrics with cherubim embroidered into it. And so every person who entered that temple to worship God was reminded again and again when he looked at that great curtain that access to the presence of God was shut because of the failure of sin. The way to intimately know God remained closed behind this massive curtain until Jesus died. And then the curtain tore And to get a sense of how that must have been, this curtain in the temple at the time of Jesus' crucifixion was around 60 to 80 feet high. And it was not a thin veil. It was probably around four inches thick. This was a massive tapestry. But the moment Jesus died, the moment His suffering for sinners ended, 
and judgment was done, the whole curtain ripped from the very top to the very bottom. And that's significant because if a human, if a person were to try to destroy this curtain, to split it apart, the most logical place to start would be the bottom. But it did not split from the bottom. From the top all the way down to the bottom. For it was split by the finger of God and the form of the cross of Christ the Son. The way was opened. The way into the presence of God. It was now restored. And anyone coming through the blood of the crucified risen Christ now has the freedom to know God in a way that had not existed since the earliest days of the world. The old way of having to rely upon Him through inadequate sacrifices which were not sufficient to cleanse the conscience and free a person from sin and guilt. That was over in a new and a better way to God had been made available. But not only was a new and better way to know God and enjoy His presence forever opened through Jesus' death, but also a new and better creation was being made ready. In the latter part of verse 51, we read that when Jesus died, the earth shook and the rocks were split. It's actually the very same verb to describe the splitting of the temple. This was an earthquake, an upheaval. Something seismic was happening. Things were shifting and changing. The old way was ending and the new one was beginning. When you think about the earth and it feels so permanent, you look at the mountains and the rocks and they're so awe-inspiring and immovable. And yet... This earthquake at the moment of Jesus' death reinforces the truth that no, this earth is not permanent. It breaks apart. It dissolves. It dies. But there is a new and a better creation that will soon replace the old one that has been marred by sin. Listen to the words of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12. At the time... His voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is the things that have been made. And why is that? In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us, that is believers, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For God is a consuming fire. Jesus' death means that He has given His people a kingdom that is established forever. It will not be moved. It cannot be shaken like this temporary earth that is easily shaken. And how comforting that is for when you look upon the world that you live, no matter what country you are part of, and you feel the upheaval, the moving, the shifting, society changing around you, you realize that as a son or a daughter of Christ the King, you belong to a kingdom that never, never will change. 
the kingdom of this world is coming down all around us, but the kingdom of Christ is rising up. And all who are united to Him in faith and repentance are made part of that unmovable kingdom. Oh, and speaking of grace, when God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, you know what happened? It was accompanied by an earthquake. And when the cross of Christ met the righteous demands of the law that we could not answer, but Jesus could, what happened? There was an earthquake. The law comes in by an earthquake, but so does grace. Jesus was forsaken so that a new and better creation will come. And finally, Jesus was forsaken so that a new and better life would be given to his people. And we see that as not only the earth is torn, not only is the curtain torn, but the grave itself is torn open. And raising to new life, as we read in verses 52 and 53, were many faithful saints of old who appeared to many in Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection. What is going on here? This just seems so fantastic, and it is. It is miraculous. Matthew does not answer all the questions that no doubt arise in our minds about this miraculous event, but he says more by saying less. You see, his point isn't to explain all of this, how many people there were, how many people saw them, uh, how long they appeared for. It does seem that they were not risen to live, live and die again. They appeared, they were seen, and then they went returning to the presence of Christ. And of course, there isn't scientific evidence to explain that. It is a miracle of God. It is supernatural. What we do know, though, that is far more earth-shattering than this earthquake itself is that there is this promise of life that comes to all who are in Christ. The coming of the Messiah was long promised to be accompanied by the resurrection of the dead. For example, in Daniel 12.2, we read, And many of those who were asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. And perhaps the most vivid portrayal we see in the Old Testament of resurrection is in Ezekiel 37, in the vision of the valley of dry bones. And there Ezekiel is shown a vision of a valley full of dead and dry bones. But through the power of the Word of God, the Spirit of God moves upon them and they grow new flesh and come to life through the breath of God. And we read in Ezekiel 37, 12, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. The promise of redemption is that promise of life. A promise to end the power of death forever. And in raising these many dead at the resurrection of Jesus, God was demonstrating that Christ's death had defeated death forever. It was a toothless lion. Once a fearsome enemy, but now nothing more but a roar. And so we say with Paul, O death, Where is your victory? Where is your sting? 
we often think of the resurrection of Christ being that foundation of the believer's hope of resurrection. And that is true and right and biblical. But Jesus' death was also the foundation for our resurrection to new life. That's why the tombs were opened. They were opened to show that Jesus took away that sting of death. You see, the reason we need His death to have the hope of resurrection, to have that sin canceled, it goes back to that idea of the frown of heaven. Jesus suffered the forsakenness of the Father because our sin was laid upon Him. And in doing that, He is paying the just penalty for our sin. That's what being forsaken was. And if that penalty hadn't been paid, then we would have every reason to still fear death. So it was His death then, as He suffered that judgment, that removed the sting of death, which is what Paul tells us again in 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus' body was torn in death, and because of that, we have a curtain in the temple that was torn and the earth is torn open and the graves are torn open. Because Jesus, the Son of God, was forsaken by the Father, we have a new and better way to enjoy God's presence. We are part of a new and better creation, a kingdom that is made without hands, which cannot be shaken. And we have a promise of a new and better life, one that is eternal, one that has defeats death itself. We have access to God's presence because the barrier of sin was removed. We are part of that new and better kingdom because the old one is being brought down. And we have the promise of a new and better life, one that is eternal because Jesus went before us and was raised for our resurrection. Everything that we know was changed by the cross. What will be, will be so much better than what currently is because Jesus was forsaken. Truly the death of Christ was the end of the beginning, but the beginning of the end. One that is eternal. And it is the change that we so desperately need. I mean, so many people... So many of us, myself included, try to find our way to God through so many ways and we end up exhausted and frustrated and discouraged and full of shame. But a better way's already been opened, the way of the cross. And so many people are trying to make this world a better place, a kingdom that can't be shaken. And as they do that through so many different ways and fail and fail again, they end up shaking it even more. But a new and better way has already come. A new and better kingdom is already built through the death and resurrection of Christ. And so many people try to find victory and hope over death to extend their lives because they fear the grave. If anything that this pandemic revealed, it was that people fear death very much. But that fear is gone. 
if you are in Christ because a new and better life has been promised to you in the death of Jesus Christ. And so all we need to do is to trust Him. Like the Roman soldiers who witnessed the cross and who witnessed these miraculous signs unfold, we must confess with our hearts and with our minds faith in Jesus and say, truly, this is the Son of God. Through the cross, the old things have passed away and behold, all things are become new. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the cross. And as we look upon it and our hearts tremble at the horror of it, we also find joy and hope. Because as Jesus suffered, as he suffered out of his deep love for us, we find our redemption. Father, I pray that you would impress the truth of the gospel all the more upon our hearts and our minds. That you would remind us of what Christ and death and resurrection means to us. And that we are part of a new kingdom, a new creation. That we have new life. That we have a better access to you than the old way. And we can enjoy your presence forever. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.